Hi, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. Max and Stacy are in Las Vegas. And a lot of political things are happening here. Let's get the lowdown. Stacy. Well, we are in political season, Max. In fact, when you and I landed here in Las Vegas, who was on the runway? But the president, Donald Trump. Not him literally on the runway, <laughs> but his plane, Air Force One, was on the runway. And uh, that was our meeting uh, our arrival here in Las Vegas. All right, it was great seeing Air Force One again. We've seen it uh, two or three times on our travels, and it's very impressive. It's a great prop when you're running for president, and that's some of the accoutrement that you have when you are president. It's the bully pulpit, and that's going to weigh heavily in this 2020 election. Well, in the D Nevada debates, there was something that Bernie Sanders said on stage when he was you know, going back and forth with Mayor Bloomberg when Mayor Bloomberg imploded on stage, you know, he, they were talking about billionaires and the problem with billionaires and should billionaires exist. I tweeted at him, I said, it's the U.S. Federal Reserve, Bernie. You co-sponsored an audit, the Fed bill. Talk about the Cantillon effect. How did Bloomberg go from a net worth of $3 billion in 2008 to $60 billion in 2020? At least half of that gain, in my opinion, is from QE. The problem is that nobody really knows anything about money. It's hard to explain money. I remember back on this very show, seven or eight years ago, when we talked to activist groups like Greenpeace about the money. They had 100 million euros in the bank, and I was explaining to them, you know, the bank is just using that to lend it to Exxon, and in fact, by you keeping the money in the bank, you're doing a lot of damage that you say you're trying to fight against. But they the respondent from the head of Greenpeace was, well, nobody understands money. You know, we can't really incorporate that in our, in our material, our, our, our descriptive of what we do because it's too confusing. And the same thing with certainly the Democrats. I mean, the Republicans have a reputation as knowing a little bit more about money than the Democrats. Uh, but the Democrats are always very confusing. And so Bernie Sanders is just out of a tradition. He's talking about socialism, which, again, is a, it, it's a, it's a model based on an incomprehensible um, non-existent theory about money. You know, this is obviously a theme over and over on Kaiser Report of the role of central banks in sowing the chaos and discord that the Democrats and their media keep on blaming on other nations. So that Cantillon effect, which allow, you know, the printing of money that inflates asset prices like stock prices, like bond prices, like real estate prices, especially at those, the closer you are to the money printers and there's no bigger money printer than the New York Fed. So if you live near the New York Fed, your property is going to be expanding. Paris, London, all the big cities across the world, Hong Kong, well, maybe Hong Kong is, might be falling apart now, but that money printing is what is causing that sense of an injustice, of an, and they're thinking it's an economic injustice when in fact it's an, a monetary injustice that is happening. So I want to turn to this other thread that kind of went viral. And, you know, it's one guy's take on some data that was released recently from the government. So, you know, it's, it's one take, but we're going to look at this take because I think it brings up some good points. It's a, a tweet stream from Oren Cass. He's the executive director of American Compass, whose stated mission is to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. 
So there's that. Here's his first tweet. I'm going to read some of them of this 16-thread tweet. How is it that our economic statistics suggest workers have been making slow but steady progress in recent decades, while popular perception is that their family finances are coming under increasingly untenable pressure? I've been working on this, and here's my answer. Punchline, popular perception is correct. In 1985, the typical male worker could cover a family of four's major expenditures, housing, health care, transportation, education, on 30 weeks of salary. By 2018, it took 53 weeks, which is a problem, as there are only 52 weeks in the year. So, I mean, you could see from the chart here, housing has been rising, but mostly health insurance. Health insurance is a big component of this added cost. And transportation and college is another big additional cost. People talk about infrastructure. And when you think about infrastructure, you think about roads and bridges and tunnels. But there's also the financial infrastructure. And the financial infrastructure in America and much of the world is 18th century. It's a model that has not worked for more than 150 years. And this Cantillon effect is the result of a faulty money infrastructure, where the money is printed in D.C., and it's not simultaneously and pervasively distributed equitably throughout the economy. It goes to a bunch of intermediaries, the primary banks, the primary dealers on Wall Street, etc. And every time it goes through these layers, it loses its potency. And by the time the average person gets it, they're now paying 30% more for health insurance than they were the year before. And that's a problem of distribution. Now, in the blockchain model, you've got thousands of computers globally that are updated simultaneously. That is an infrastructure improvement to the way money is created and distributed, uh, Bitcoin being the best of the best. But in the U.S. and around the world, they're still using this antiquated infrastructure that is like using plumbing or some other infrastructure from 150 years ago. It's obviously out of date, but it serves the interests of a few folks well, and they hold the keys to power. And now we have this all fiat system, and it's a command and control. They call it capitalism, but it is a form of command and control whereby the Federal Open Market Committee, this committee of you know, academics who, on paper, they try to organize and manage, micromanage the economy. So the, this guy, Orrin Cass, he's asking, like, how is this so wrong? How are the media and uh, political and financial elite, how are they seeing the, how it is for the rest of the economy, for the rest of the workers? Like, how do they, how did the disconnect happen? And obviously, there is the issue of inflation, because, of course, inflation has been very low, they say. There's always low inflation. Um, so they do all those adjustments and hedonic adjustments. Some people say it's all a conspiracy, but in a way, it's also just them in an ivory tower, not understanding the world around them. For example, Aaron Cass says, our inflation-adjusted data says that car prices have not increased since the mid-1990s. Obviously, that's not remotely true. What economists are saying is that cars have gotten better. So the higher sticker price doesn't reflect inflation. It reflects higher quality. Again, fair enough, but we have to recognize that the median family must now pay for health insurance and will not use the cure. Last 20 years, a typical family health care consumption has gone up by 2000 but their premium has gone up by 13000 
no wonder they feel worse off. You know, in terms of this, all the hedonic adjustment that goes on between, um, you know, from cars to healthcare to, you know, university costs. You still need a car to get to work in most places in America. It still costs you more money, but because it's better, they're saying that you got more for it. This this computer packs a whole bunch more uh, power than it did 10 years ago, and so they 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 deduce that, they deduct that from the inflation, and the same thing with healthcare. But it's actually really eating into the cost. But all the the elite, the media elite, the corporate elite, all those people who who are the first in on the Cantillon effect. Remember, they get the free money. They don't feel this inflation to the same extent that everybody else does. So again, just like, just like at the bottom, people come up with conspiracy theories about inflation numbers. At the top, they're doing the same thing. They're coming up with conspiracy theories of like, why are the ordinary people so upset with everything? It must be some sort of mind control via memes, like because the economy is doing great. We know this because look at the data. Look at the look at the inflation numbers. It's all great. Right. In fact, they're experiencing deflation because the Cantillon effect means that the assets that are being bought, let's say property in New York City, as collateral goes up at a greater pace than even the money printing. So if you're borrowing against your asset that was inflated due to money printing to buy food at the store, you'll notice that, in fact, the spend at the store is less relative to the appreciation of your asset. So you're thinking, well, life's great. My, I, everything's cheaper for me. But uh, in terms of these hedonic adjustments, I mean, this represents essentially an obfuscation moat. So there's a moat around the castle where the money printers live, and they protect that moat through obfuscation. They're saying that the computer is actually not this value. It's a different value. I believe the word the Greeks came up with would be solipsism, uh, the misuse of language utterly and completely to confuse and distort. Larry Summers is a brilliant orator and writer. When he appears in the Financial Times, he writes perfect gibberish, but in a way that every academic nods their head dutifully, like, oh, that's a genius, Larry. But he's, <laughs> at the end of the day, he's just protecting his moat with obfuscation. Well, speaking of moat through obfuscation, so that last tweet of Orrin Cass's that I read, you know, where costs that the, the health care consumption, so actually how much health care you use, in real life, the average American over the last 20 years went from, um, it has gone up by 2000. That's it. Your cost went up from um, basically you used to spend 700, you used to spend 2,122 in 1999. That's what the average American spent, 2,122 in real health care costs. Now it's 4,380. Average American actually consumes 4,380. Um, how much are your actual premiums? How much do you pay the fire sector, the you know finance, insurance, and real estate? How much do you pay to Wall Street for that? Well, the average American in premiums pays 18,764. You could see that gap. You could see how the huge gap, Max. This is the injustice happening. This is the Cantillon effect. This is them getting all the money. This is what people are upset about. They could try to pretend that it's some meme that has undermined the faith in institutions like the Federal Reserve, like the Treasury, like the Congress. But that right there shows you that you're spending a whole lot more for not much 
more. Well, let's return to the subject of financial illiteracy, the Democrats, and Bernie Sanders. So your chart very graphically demonstrates that the cost of health care for me a, a year would be approximately 4000 and yet I'm being charged 18000 So there's a 14000 spread that's a subsidy government is allowing going to health insurance executives. They're getting a $14,000 per household subsidy. If I were Bernie Sanders, I would show that chart on the screen and say, elect me president, and everyone who is a victim of this scam gets a $14,000 charitable donation against their taxes, right? Because it's a, I'm making a charitable donation to the insurance company executives of about $14,000 a year. I should get a tax write-off. I mean, okay, I'm willing to take that tax write-off. I need it in this high-tax environment. That's the argument Bernie Sanders would make. It was shut Bloomberg down immediately because not even Bloomberg is financially literate to that level. Well, we have to take a break. And when we come back, much more coming your way. So don't go away. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Let's now turn to Alex Legal of Layer One. This is all going to be about mining. Mining is a huge part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hi, thank you very much for having me. All righty. So you have just raised, your company has just raised $50 million from billionaire investor Peter Thiel for Layer One. What is it you're doing in Texas, Alex? A um, bunch of different things, <laughs> but effectively, the approach that Layer One takes is that of vertical integration, um, which means that we have full control over every cost and profit lever in the Bitcoin mining stack. So that covers everything from uh, manufacturing our own custom chips. We build our own cooling and mining infrastructure that is very scalable and modular and plug and play. And we have our own power procurement and development, which means that uh, we basically get the cheapest possible electricity at scale in the world. And vertically integrating all of these different aspects of the Bitcoin mining stack allow us to become the most efficient Bitcoin mining company in the world. So I read somewhere that the goal uh, is to capture 25% of global Bitcoin mining. Right now, you've got uh, approximately 50% uh, in China. And so is that correct? Is that a goal? You're trying to capture maybe 25% of the global Bitcoin mining market, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this if we wouldn't have very ambitious goals. And I think the, the distribution is even uh, more skewed towards China. So the numbers that we have are over 60% even. And it kind of makes sense because Bitcoin ASIC uh, started in 2013 and China is a very manufacturing driven economy, whereas the United States has kind of emancipated itself into a software and financialization based economy. And for that reason, because the last seven or eight years in the Bitcoin mining industry were all about, do I have the fastest chips? Do I have the most uh, uh, cutting edge mining machines in the fastest amount of time? Well, if they mainly get produced in China, which they did, but you had very successful companies like Bitmain or Canaan and so forth come out. Um, well, then the path of least resistance led miners to locate in China where they could always source the most efficient mining hardware um, 
faster than anybody else and also install them faster than anybody else. But now because provably development cycles have been extended for that much longer, instead of every six months, a new generation of chips coming out, um, it will now be a multi-year effort and uh, business cycle. The edge no longer lies in do I have the fastest chips in the fastest amount of time. That's relatively commoditized at this point. What truly matters is uh, your operational expenses. And those are primarily a function of your electricity pricing. Um, hence, your electricity pricing and the ability to take advantage of it efficiently due to your cooling is what matters most. And we believe, and factually, at this point, we know that the cheapest electricity in the world at scale is in West Texas. And uh, for that reason, it's symptomatic of the nascency of the industry that it first started out in China. But as it matures, um, the unit economics and the business models um, underpinning that industry change fundamentally over time. And uh, it's, it's a natural consequence of that, that because of work like Larry One and others, the hash rate will significantly uh, shift towards being US-based. Now this is actually, there's two levels to this. Number one is the examination of the business case. And then number two, which is I think gonna be exciting for any Bitcoiner out there, is that anyone who had questions about Chinese having dominance in mining, this is fantastic news because now the mining and the hash rate is gonna be distributed more geographically. And so there's gonna be more competition in this industry uh, as far as chips go and the seeking of cheaper electricity, as you mentioned, which makes the network more secure, which if, uh, ultimately will make the price go higher. And um, let's talk about the electricity for a second. So you're saying it's the cheapest in the world, but from what I understand is your equipment is also taking advantage of some proprietary cooling technologies, uh, which is a factor as well. Um, how for so two questions? How how much cheaper is your electricity cost? And uh, what about these cooling units? Isn't that kind of an added cost, or is that all factored in? What do you think, Alex? First of all, right, it, it's it's the beauty of economic incentive alignments, right? There's a there's economic reasons for bringing hash power to the United States um, because you can make money that way, and the secondary effect of that is that. It actually improves and you know boosts uh, Bitcoin security and you know sort of distribution symmetry of hash rate and so forth. So that's it's just economics one on one, which is which is sort of the 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 simple beauty of it. And then um, in terms of the electricity pricing in West Texas, well, um, West Texas is or Texas in general is the most deregulated energy market within the United States. It's the biggest wind energy market and sixth biggest solar energy market. Um, it is a very mature market in terms of having seen multiple cycles uh, within the energy industry. It has a very mature and well-established um, infrastructure um, pertaining to, um, you know, all types of services and, and, and skills and crafts um, that are necessary to build the appropriate infrastructure also for Bitcoin mining. And uh, for that reason, in general, uh, prices have very attractive market uh, market prices in Texas. And um, the problem, however, especially in West Texas, is that it's it's very hot, right? So in the summertime, it can get over 100 degrees, 110 degrees Fahrenheit, perhaps even more. 
you have a huge temperature delta where in the winter it can also get extremely cold. Um, so the task is find a way to have high density, high scalable, um, and very robust cooling infrastructure that does not counterbalance any pricing advantage that you might get. So for example, it would absolutely be logistically possible to do air-cooled mining in, in West Texas. However, you would have to pay so, so much more in terms of cooling your machines um, and running and maintaining everything that it would completely counterbalance any pricing advantage you would have because of the market prices. Um, so what we have been developing for, at this point, um, three and a half years now, um, and uh, you know that's part of the intellectual property of layer one, it's also patent pending at this point, which uh, we're proud of, um, is a plug and play, high density, um, liquid cooled mining container technology. And effectively, what that allows you to do is have your mining machines be completely unaffected by air temperature. And uh, it does so with that minimal additional power draw. So effectively, it's extremely efficient and allows you to take advantage of the very cheap pricing without um, effectively having to pay that much more um, in terms of your maintenance. I get the uh, point about energy costs being low. Now, if Bitcoin is viewed as a strategic asset by governments going forward, uh, as they do gold or other foreign reserves, uh, what about the risk, if you can call it that, of government subsidizing energy? You know, China could subsidize energy. Will America step in and, and understand this is a strategic reserve? Because right now they're losing the battle with 5G. Uh, China's running away with 5G technology. The U.S. is not competing at all. They're trying to sanction people instead of competing. So is that going to be an issue going forward? I think it depends on how you frame it to the government, right? So one way of framing it would be, you have Bitcoin be the first instance of provable digital scarcity in the world, right? There's nothing been like it before. It's a, it's a provably scarce and valuable resource that is currently um, sort of emancipating itself and, and fostering this very interesting um, um, ecosystem. Well, um, if it is going to be a competition between China and the US, then it lies within the US best interest in order to accumulate as much hash rate and Bitcoin as possible if there's a non-zero chance that Bitcoin will be that much bigger in future. And the interesting side effect of what we do in our business um, is with, you can effectively think of each of these containers as an inverse battery. Um, the reason being that effectively, in the real world, in factories in West Texas or anywhere else, it takes days or weeks to shut off power and electricity. And if there's ever, for example, a short-term uh, you know, catastrophe where there's power loss, et cetera, things break, literally. So the difference here being that we have a significant amount of power draw per container. However, we can do high frequency uh, turning off and on these machines because it's effectively an instant software command where we just press the button. So what happens is that provably, and we get paid a premium for that by the market, um, there's programs you can subscribe to um, where we actually act as a grid stabilizer. Because what happens is that we always keep a constant demand on the grid 
especially when, for example, in the winter time, uh, in, in the winter time when there's less electricity demand in Texas. However, when there's ever a grid overload, we can instantly turn off our machines and effectively free up that capacity for the rest of the market because you know, effectively people uh, suffer if they can't turn on the AC and it's 110 degrees Fahrenheit outside and so forth. This technology sounds great. I mean, you've got proprietary chips, you've got proprietary cooling, you're, you're getting cheap energy. Uh, it's uh, the name of the company is Layer One. Uh, you've got a $50 million raise, I believe a $200 million valuation. Peter Thiel is um, certainly involved in a big way. I think Bank to the Future, our friends over at Bank to the Future with Simon Dixon are allowing their users to have access to this deal. So if you're a Bank to the Future customer, uh, I would recommend you taking taking a look at that. I've talked to uh, Mark Yusko at Morgan Creek about this deal. He's uh, yet to get back to me yet. Mark, hello, where is Mark Yusko? Calling Mark Yusko. Um, so let me just uh, f final finish this up uh, by asking a little bit um, about um, the chips now. Where are they manufactured? Where are you manufacturing these chips? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're doing that with Samsung, and um, they're produced in Taiwan and South Korea. That sounds good. Uh, excellent. All right. So Alex Legal, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know with a startup of this nature, you guys are crushed for time. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. Thanks for being on the Kaiser Report. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed this. That's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert. If you want to catch us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. Until next time. Bye, y'all. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.